Happy New Year. Today we're going to talk with Joey and he's going to explain a little bit more about what the biological species concept is. So this is sort of our part two of our last episode where we had Dr. Van Remsen discuss some of this terminology for us. So Joey thought it would be a good idea to discuss a couple of the species frameworks from which uh, many biologists work from. So in his case, uh, it's the, called the biological species concept, and I'll let him explain that. Here we go. In southwest Louisiana, you have around Sabine, the refuge, and the Moore Odom property, and Johnson Bayou in that area. Um, you, you had a situation where, you know, coyotes moved in, and they were able to interbreed with the last remaining wolves there, and they created hybrids. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service comes in and removes most of the known wolves that they, they knew about there, and they pull them out and declare the species extinct and leave. I mean, they didn't get all the wolves up. Some stayed behind, and over time, those wolves eventually died. And what was left with is their hybrid progenies um, or offspring or whatever. Um, but in those, those deep areas of the, the marsh complex, I mean, that, that smaller coyote phenotype wasn't effective with getting into those areas. And what was, was that larger hybrid thing that we have there, that, that intergress canid that we have there now. So that stays there and it's, it's been there for 30, 40 years. And when we look at it morphometrically, it is distinct from coyotes and it's distinct from the red wolf. It is something intermediate, um, at least morphometrically. And I mean, I, I guess Bridget and, and Kristen's work will show that it is genetically something intermediate too. But that, that thing is unique to that area. Once you get away from that area, you get coyotes. Um, you don't, and, and the red wolf is gone. So the two, the two parental species that you would expect to be there are gone. And so what you have is probably what you would classify as a hybrid zone, right? Because what you have there is just hybrids. You just have, um, and you don't have that anywhere else in North America, uh, maybe with the exception of, of areas around, you know, Ontario, where you have Eastern wolves and gray wolves and coyotes, but in our case, in our area, so that is very distinct and unique. You, you can't go to Alabama and find that. You're not going to go to Tennessee and find that. You're not going to go to Missouri or Florida and find that. You have to go to that marsh complex around the, the Louisiana-Texas border to find that population, that those distinct, you know, coyote-wolf hybrids, and that's where they're at. It's the most interesting part of this research so far, but it brings up a lot of questions, and it forces us to address some issues uh, with policy and the Endangered Species Act as well. So what we're going to do is talk a little bit today about some of these species concepts. Joey's going to introduce us to the biological species concept, which uh, was developed more or less by um, a evolutionary biologist named Ernst Mayer. And we're just going to jump right into this conversation. Uh, he, he saw... You know, the evolution, I mean, you know, speciation was a population process. And so he saw individuals as a collection 
of you know, basically a population. And, and so you would compare populations and you would see distinctiveness that you could then statistically differentiate. And so for him, you know, you needed a definition or a framework that was that incorporated population processes, in this case, reproductive isolation and dispersal. And so it's out of all the species concepts, I think it's the only one that is, uh, it works off an ecological framework, like, you know, like, like I said, population processes, which is being an ecologist myself makes it easier for me to, to understand and to sort of use in the field when I'm, you know, collecting data and, and trying to develop hypotheses and stuff like that. And the, the main thing with that is that population or species have to be reproductively isolated so that if they come back together at some point, they become sympatric again, there's no gene flow. Um, there's no, there's no mix in. And that, that's been the, the point of criticism with the concept, which, you know, it, when people criticize it for that reason, I think they haven't really paid much attention to it because, you know, the whole point of, viewing speciation as, as a process is to understand that there's a starting point and there's probably, I mean, there is an ending point to it, but there's, you know, a whole swath of intermediate things in between. And so like subspecies would be, you know, a first step towards speciation. So you have, you know, several populations of the same species. Um, there's limited gene flow. So it's that limited gene flows allowing these populations to adapt to local and conditions and different, I guess, traits are, are measurable. You can see differences um, among those populations, but there's enough gene flow that they retained, that they, re they retain their main, you know what I mean? They, 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 they keep their species status, it holds them together. Um, but if something, if something happened, like a geographic barrier formed, then that subspecies thing can continue on a unique like evolutionary trajectory and become a, a, a different species. So, I mean, yeah, the biological species concept allows for degrees of like interbreeding to happen. Like it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's based in reality. I mean, it's, it has to be realistic. My next question then would be, did the biological species concept uh, speak to the idea of hy natural hybridization in the wild? And did they recognize that hybridization did occur, especially at contact uh, zones where two species may abut each other in the wild yeah no no they understood that um and yeah they they, they acknowledge that yeah i mean it's yeah i mean it's like that's, that's what's the frustrating point about it, is like yeah you, you mentioned like you know this is the framework that i go off of and they're like well you know such and such species interbreeds with this species so doesn't mean they're the same thing and it's like no like that's not what we're saying like we're just we're just saying that you know you have to get the, you know, the, the fulfill species. I mean, the speciation process requires reproductive isolation. And to get that, there has to be barriers that form. And those barriers are going to be things like geographic barriers. Um, they may be habitat differences. And then after that, it may be behavioral stuff like pre-breeding behavior. And then there's, you know, after they breed. So whether or not, you know, the egg can be fertilized. Yeah. And that, that would be like what, uh, prezygotic or something. And then postzygotic, which is like, if it's, if it is fertilized and it's born, then you have a hybrid that can't, um, that's, that, that's not fertile like this. So, so you have, you have, you know, a number of these barriers working at one time or at, at, at simultaneously, some barriers are stronger than others, 
but uh, cumulatively, I guess, altogether, you get like an absolute like isolation, you know. So in the case with the red wolf and the coyote, um, you you had they they evolved allopatrically. So you had this this smaller wolf in your eastern deciduous forest of you know eastern temperate forest of you know the U.S. and to the west of that you had you know the prairie system that had this this smaller coyote and and so these animals didn't coexist together. If you look at North American canis, things like coyotes and red wolves that evolved on the North, you know, the North American landscape. And then you look at like gray wolves, they evolved in Eurasia. They have a common ancestor, right? So that, that common ancestors, some of those animals had dispersed into Eurasia and then the Barren Strait, you know, thawed out and then they became isolated. So over time, that ancestor, that canis ancestor eventually evolved into dolls, you know, wild dogs, gray wolves, whatever. So they were geographically isolated and um, did their own thing there in Eurasia. In the meantime, those, those, you know, those older, you know, canis species eventually evolved into red wolves and coyotes in North America. So when the gray wolf came back, you know, when the gray wolves, you know, dispersed into North America, um, they had developed, you know, pretty strong um, reproductive barriers um, where they didn't, you know, blend in and hybridize with coyotes and red wolves. Um, you know, because you're not finding red wolf genetic material in gray wolves, you know, and stuff like that. So, so the gray wolf came into North America, having been, you know, isolated long enough that they had behavioral differences. In fact, they, they, they dispersed into North America with their own prey species, right? Because they followed elk, moose, bison, yeah, they, so they, I mean, like, you know, so they, they follow, so you had a massive migration of, of fauna coming across, you know, into North America. And so, so gray wolves came in with them, whereas like, you know, um, red wolves is specialized on white-tailed deer, which, you know, are, you know, are, are, are North American ungulate. Um, and so like the, those, those different ecological differences, you know, sort of helped maintain. Um, but again, the, the gray wolf never pushed into temperate forest of the Southeast and the mid Atlantic. So they didn't, they weren't sympatric with the red wolves. And at that time, the coyote was, its range was contracting to just the Western and central areas of the U S Mexico and, and Canada. Okay. So at this time we have the gray wolf moving in to North America. We have had much larger, uh, Canid species in the United States up until that point. Everybody knows about the dire wolf. Take us from that point, from the dire wolf, what happened? And so as that lineage got bigger, it opened up a niche for a smaller Canis to come in. And that's where Canis Latrans pops in. And there's such a difference between the dire wolf and the the uh, I guess the, the the early Pleistocene coyote, which would be a little bit bigger than our normal or modern coyotes, there was a gap there, and at that time the red wolf started emerging into that gap. He started to fill that gap, and around that time, that's when the dire wolf went extinct, and the gray wolves are moving in, and then you see the coyote retreat out of our eastern forest, and then the red wolf pops in and becomes the the predominant canis species, and so it began competing with coyotes 
in the eastern forest probably and we had a limited prey base we didn't have a large you don't have that large diversity of ungulates in our eastern forest like you do out west you don't have mule deer white-tailed deer pronghorns bison elk you just have white-tailed deer and then at higher elevations you'll have elk and then you had bison in some other areas but for the most part i mean they're competing over white-tailed deer but at the same time you had this gray wolf come in and it's now competing with the coyote and the coyote doesn't, it, it just, it doesn't hybridize with gray wolves. Uh, we're, there's just no, we're just not seeing that. And so what's happening and you can see this with the fossil record because you start to see coyotes decrease in, in size as these gray wolves move in because they're competing for the same prey base. And so the coyote has really, you know, two options. It either goes extinct or it switches to something else and it, it, it modifies over time, the populations do, because it's moving away from like preying on ungulates probably. It's shifting more towards, you know, ground squirrels, you know, you know, hares and rabbits and probably, you know, to a lesser extent, you know, white-tailed deer and stuff like that. You know, you, you see a drop, you know, they go from averaging like 45 pounds or 50 pounds. They, they start to um, maybe 40, 45, they, they, they go down to 20, 25 pounds over, over time and become smaller. I mean, because there's no, there's no gray wolves in, in our Eastern forest. There's just red wolves, red wolves and coyotes can't coexist because they're competing for the same limited prey base. And because likely because they can hybridize, um, there's the, the, the red wolves cannot tolerate having coyotes in their territories like gray wolves can. Gray wolves can have coyotes hanging around, you know, their territories and, and snacking on some of their, their, their carcasses and they can run them off. And red wolves can't do that because coyotes can breed with their offspring. So they, they just cannot tolerate these animals in their territories. You start to see these populations, you know, sort of assort themselves on the landscape. You see red wolves in our Eastern temperate forest. And then, like I said, in, the, in our, our Midwest prairie system, you get um, gray wolves and coyotes as the two canis species. Um, they're allopatric. So there's no, but there is, there is along that, like that prairie Eastern forest, like transition zone is probably where their contact zone is. Before you go on, I have to ask you to explain allopatric and sympatric so that people who don't have that background, they know what we're talking about. If you don't mind. Yeah. When I say sympatric, it means two species co-occur in the same time and in the same area. So like right now I'm in New Jersey so raccoons, coyotes, and white-tailed deer are sympatric because at this moment, as I'm talking to you, they're out there outside my window existing, co-occurring in the woods, interacting with each other. Allopatric would be, you know, lions and tigers, you know, in, in Africa and Asia um, and bobcats here in New Jersey are allopatric. They, they, they're alive at the same time, but they don't exist geographically. They don't overlap. They're completely separated. They don't come in contact with each other. So that, that's allopatric. So that's what I'm saying here. Red wolves were in eastern temperate forest with no gray wolves, no coyotes. They, they were there by themselves. And gray wolves and coyotes are in the Midwestern prairie system and out west and in other areas of North America. But we're talking about where they would butt up in the contact zone in Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma, you know, Kansas in that area. So, yeah, that contact zone, I don't know how the breadth of it, like how, how big it is, how wide it is, the extent of it. I, I don't know. But, um, but I mean, you know, so, yeah. So this, this is going back to your, your reproductive isolation and what type of barriers there are. This is your first barrier. This is a, there's a geographic barrier where, you know, coyotes and gray wolves aren't pushing into our Eastern forest. 
And since they're not doing that, you know, your, your, your red wolves that are in North Carolina, that are in Tennessee, that are in Alabama, they're, they're not encountering gray wolves. They're not encountering coyotes. So that, that the only, the only barrier that's working right now, that's absolute total isolation is distance. But your, your red wolves that are in Texas and Louisiana and Missouri and parts of Oklahoma, those, those areas are in contact with coyotes and gray wolves. So the question is, is, okay, the geographic barrier is not there. Then what else is working? Well, in that case, it might be habitat preferences, you know, in that case, even if they are sympatric or co-occurring, they might be selecting for different types of habitat. Um, and if they do come in contact with each other, there may be other types of behaviors that may facilitate like discrimination. You know, like I said, like in our case, it may be that they are interested with each other. And so when they try to run with each other, they, they feed on different things, you know, maybe coyotes can't hunt elk, you know, or deer or whatever. So they can't, they can't really, um, they can't really work with the wolf species. And so they just, you know, um, and that's what we see with red wolves when they, when they, they try to pair out with coyotes, um, they just, some of them just behaviorally, um, they, they can't, um, they can't, they can't make it work, you know, for whatever reason, there's, there's enough difference in their, in their ecological needs that it, it, it's expressed in their behavior and they just aren't compatible. And so they can't really engage. And since they can't engage, they can't mate, but sometimes they can, which is where you get some limited amount of hybridization. Um, in the case of gray wolves and coyotes, I mean, they, it's, they're, they're just completely isolated. I mean, the only way you can create a gray wolf coyote hybrid is in captivity. I mean, that, that Meech paper that came out, what, five, six years ago. I mean, they, they took like, what, nine or ten female coyotes and they artificially inseminated them with gray wolf semen. And then, like, out of the, out of the nine pregnancies, only, like, one came to term or whatever everything else was stillborn births. And so like, there's clearly like real barriers there. And so like that, and that's not even hybridization, that's genetic engineering. Like it's not even natural. I mean, you got to strap a coyote down and anesthetize it and then, and then, and then artificially inseminate. That's not, that, that's not, that's not hybridization. That's genetic engineering. That's like taking jellyfish genes and, and, and asserted it. Yeah. And then a mouse and make it glow. And, and it's the same, somewhat the same way with red wolves and coyotes. I mean, we didn't have, natural hybridization. And I don't think, I mean, based on what we know with the historic and fossil record is there, there weren't, um, there wasn't a big hybrid zone. I mean, it's hard to find that those samples that would indicate there was that mixture in these regions of the, the, of the country. So we know that it's, it's more modern and it resulted from us just, you know, decimating wolf populations and reducing them to basically a handful of individuals that are in need of a mate. And so you're allowing coyotes to encroach and they're then interacting and engaging with those coyotes. But overwhelmingly, you're not seeing pair bonding. It's only a, a small handful of the wolves that are doing that. And they're the ones who are creating the hybrids. And then the hybrids can then back cross into the wolves population and stuff like that, you know, and whatnot. So it's not like widespread, you know, hybridization, but enough that it's it, it was a problem. The big problem was the actual killing of wolves. Yeah. I mean, Van had mentioned that when these populations are uh, really threatened. I mean, they're biologically, they still are, are looking for yeah. mate. I think it's the same thing with like bobcat and Canada lynx. Right. 
but but even not that like even climate like climate change like look at the polar bears and the grizzlies aren't they now like um there's these issues now because they're because of climate change they're have they're starting to overlap because it's not as cold right and and so they're hybridizing now and like it's crazy that's crazy yeah yeah so that's that, that's and that that's bridget and kristen's argument that was the paper they had published in I think conservation letters a couple years ago where they were, you know, they brought in that web of life framework, you know, that they, they operate off of to make the case that, you know, hybridization is more, you know, occurs more frequently in, in the wild than we, than we know of. And that our policies for endangered and imperiled species don't account for this and, and they need to. Um, um, because yeah, I mean, if, 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 yeah, because as as populations lose that distinctiveness, they lose those those protections, um, and and so um, so that yeah, that's that's you know so that's the argument. I think everyone's pushing for that. I would even yeah, I, I would suggest that you know some some hybrid populations are important. Right? I think it's important to note also that the ESA uh, was developed in what 1973, and perhaps it is time to do a massive overhaul and not just, you know, um, small changes here and there, because we now know like climate change is a huge contributing factor to these landscape alterations as, you know, as well as just population, human population growth, um, et cetera. So I think this is, it's important to note that, that these situations like what's happening in Southwest Louisiana could be happening elsewhere more often soon sooner than later yeah that that goes back to like what we discussed like you know 30 minutes ago where the, the criteria that you would use to to measure distinctiveness among populations to say this population is a unique species this one's a, a different species and this one's a subspecies yeah what criteria would you use and in this case we this population it's definitely hybrid in origin. I mean, there's no doubt about it, you know. Um, but if you were wanting to classify it as something different, like a subspecies or a different species, it would have to be on a unique evolutionary trajectory from coyotes and red wolves. It would have to be going its own path. And on top of that, you would have to ask, like, what are we using to measure that distinctness? Morphology, behavior, genetics. Um, I mean, I guess it depends. I mean, genetically, yes, it, it, it would be different, but at the same time, it would be very similar to what you see between red wolves and coyotes because it's relatively new. You may not get like, you may not get the unique, I guess, alleles or, or genes or haplotypes or whatever. Yeah. But it's, you would expect it in a thousand years, but right now you went, but right now what we're seeing is there's a change in morphology and there's a change in behavior. And so there might be differences in prey selection, might be differences in spatial needs, and those things may lead to a sort of mating behaviors, right? Because they're sympatric with coyotes, they're interacting with coyotes, but they may not be breeding with coyotes because they're 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 selecting for mates that look like them and behave like them, and you know, and so and so that that's where you're getting your first steps towards isolation. Um, in this case, it may not be enough to say. They're, you know, a distinct species, but I mean, there, there might be enough evidence to say that if, right. if, if I mean, it's, it's only been what, 40 somewhat years out, but I mean, still. but it, it brings it, but this is, this is the conversation that I guess they tried to have in the literature, I don't know, four or five years ago where John way up in Massachusetts was like the Northeastern coyote 
should be classified as its own unique species. I think he tried to say it should be Canis Orions or something like that. I, I can't think of the species. I'm terrible with Latin. So what was his, what was his art? Can you tell us what his argument was and why? His, his argument is that, that there was, it was hybrid in origin and that they were pretty much unique to the Northeast that they've, you know, these, these, the particular phenotype was big and robust and wolf-like and but it was designed like not designed but basically adapted for that region and that it was on i think i, I mean i would i would guess he was making the argument it's been a while since i read the papers that um they, they were they were kind of you know their own unique population different from eastern wolves different from red wolves different from gray wolves and different from the, the western coyote um and then like you know brent patterson and those guys from Trenton universities rebutted that and said, no, you know, um, and then Roland Case came in and, 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 you know, basically said the same thing that there was, they weren't reproductively isolated. Um, and that there's no uniqueness to their, their genome, their genome. And that, you know, these are just, you know, introgressed coyotes. Um, I, I mean, I, I think they're all partially right and partially wrong. I mean, you could probably make the case that the Northeastern, Coyote is, you know, maybe it's on its way to become a subspecies and maybe there's, a, you know, there's, you know, they could be evolving into a, a new Canis type. But I mean, it makes sense. Like, OK, since the Industrial Revolution, this shit's going to start happening more and more and more frequently because we we're we are affecting the landscape. We're affecting habitat. We're, we're killing things off. You know, this. So we're we're accelerating all these, these, these strange quote unquote, like maybe hybridization events. So I feel like it's silly to like, not recognize that like, this is just going to start happening more and more often. And I mean, what do you do from that point on though? I don't know. You know, that's, I guess that's the big problem. Like, yeah, but I mean, yeah, but but this goes, like, this goes back to like the continuous, the continuous like form of, of, of these animals across the landscape. You know, it's, I mean, it's like, you don't have distinct discontinuities with coyotes. I mean, you, you grab, you grab a coyote from Missouri and from Texas and from Alabama, they kind of look alike, but they look different from the ones in California, but the ones in West Texas and New Mexico look more like the ones in California, but they also look like the ones in, you know, East Texas. It, it, it's, it's, you get this, you get this inner, you get this intergrade. Yeah. 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 You get this. Yeah. And so there's, but you know, with you know, and, and but you know, with like Canis in general, you, you have like hard discontinuous like breaks between coyotes and gray wolves and red wolves and eastern wolves, and that and those those hard breaks, at least to me, indicate speciation. Like I mean, they, they clearly show that there's 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 some isolation and some like independence in where the, the population is going to in terms of like it's a it's trajectory. Okay, it's understandable, but that also took thousands and thousands of years, right? Yes, yes, but in this case, what what, what John would be arguing is in this case, the hybridization is is like steroids, man. Like it, it's just like kicked in, and you know this this small thing just got big, and now it's like here, and and I get his argument, and I, I you know, yeah, and, and I mean, cool. I mean, I I mean, I wouldn't make the same argument for our animals down there in Louisiana. But the argument you could make is that it's distinct enough that it warrants some protection because we're recognizing its uniqueness, its distinctiveness, and we want to give it that that ecological space or the natural space to do its thing, and see you know, and then you know, yeah, and see what happens. I mean, we won't be around for when things happen, you know, but you know. 
but still. And the other thing too, and like, uh, you know, I always think about this is like, no matter what happens, no matter what we do, we can kill all the damn wolves. There's going to be a canis that is going to eventually fill that spot because that is what. Yeah, it's going to be Latrans. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 no matter what we do. So like. Yeah, because that's because Latrans is more basal in that, um, that evolutionary tree, that like that, that Darwinian tree. Um, so yeah, I mean, Canis Latrans has, a, I mean, it has a really important, like, yes, it's the foundation for, for wolves. Right. I mean, you have Canis Rufus, Canis, uh, Lycaon, um, and then you have Lupus. And so if we were to wipe these, these Canis species out, I mean, coyotes would fill those niches and over, tens of thousands, yeah. maybe hundreds of thousands of years would evolve into larger right. wolf-like species. They would fill those gaps. Yeah. If you wiped out Canis latrans, lupus wouldn't fill that, exactly. that, that hole. Um, Rufus wouldn't. I mean, yeah. that's not how it works. Usually it's your smaller uh, species that, that fill in those those gaps once larger species go extinct. And the ones that are less um, specialized. Like jackals. Yeah, jackals you would know? do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, jackals would do the same thing exactly. in, in Europe and Asia. And, it's and the generalist. It's the generalist yeah. too, right? Like yeah. it, the ones that have that, like they, they're more flexible in, in, in everything. You know? Yeah, I mean, if you, wipe, and if you wiped out all your canis species, including, yeah. you know, jackals and coyotes, it would be your foxes. That would be the next things that would probably step in exactly. and, and be that, that dog-like, you know, and it's critter. Gonna, it's that, gonna, exactly. Yeah. There's, and, and I was even saying this the other day about feral freaking hogs because we obviously we had at some point in, yeah. in the United States, we had to have had like the javelina or some sort of native, what do you call it? area, whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. We had to have. And I guarantee you yeah. that, you know, we, we got rid of them all. And I, and that's why these damn feral, you know, the feral hogs are, are they're filling something that obviously there was always something yeah. like that on the landscape. Same thing with cats, big cats, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it's just interesting to me because it's like, there's a, I don't know. It's interesting, but I think that, yeah, you're right. Well, that's, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic with John's argument. Uh, I wouldn't poo poo on it right away. He's essentially saying, look there, we had wolves. They, they're gone right. and this thing moved in and it's occupying its space and it's, it's very more wolf. And it's kind of, he made, I think he made a, I think he's what have made the point. It's like, you know, we, we call these wolf like coyotes, but why don't we call them right. coyote like wolves? Like what's the other side of the coin? Like it's the, you know, and right. it's the, you know, so he, I thought he made some interesting comments, but at the same time, the rebuttals to it from, from Brent's lab and from Roland's lab were there, were not incorrect saying like, look, these things are still, connect it with other Western populations and there's still gene flow and, you know, they're, they're still coyotes. Like they're not, they're not a separate species and, you know, and their origins mm -hmm. through hybrid is anyway, I would have to go back and review the papers again. But um, like I said, I, I, I mean, I, I was on the sidelines just enjoying the conversation. Um, yeah. I don't think either side was completely right. I don't think either side was completely wrong. Well, but, it's uh, tricky. It's so yeah. tricky, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I if mean, you, if you look at the big picture, you have, you know, you have this massive expansion geographically of this, this Canis species, you know, it's ranging from Alaska all the way over to New Brunswick. I think New Brunswick is like Prince mm -hmm. Edward Island, that area in the Eastern end of Canada, yeah, down, at, yeah. down at the Central America. Like, you don't think they're going to have sub subpopulation, subspecies over time. There's going to be enough isolation of that, course. I mean, you look, you look at the right. gray wolf, the gray wolf came in and then had, you know, an early settlement stage became isolated and then had a, maybe a second, maybe there wasn't a second migration act, but anyway, you have this really distinct subspecies in the Mexican gray wolf that is different right. from 
the other subspecies, the other, you know, the regional populations yeah. enough that it is, it is actually even people like Roland, like, like Bob Wayne, who, who I don't think believe in subspecies will say, look, if there is a subspecies, this frigging thing like fits that criteria. Like that's how distinct yeah. that, that wolf population is, you know, down there. And so, I how mean, can they, wait, 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 how can he not, I mean, they're just eco, like, or what do you want to Ecotypes. call them? Ecotypes. They, they, yeah, they yeah, that's yeah. what a subspecies is. Yeah. That's all a subspecies is. But like, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously it is. I mean, it, it clearly, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah. I mean, that, that the Mexican gray wolf is, is pretty unique. Yeah. And in, in terms yeah, of yeah, like, totally. like, like I said, it, it is, it is like, you know, like a, 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 definitely a subspecies, the one that's not even debated. I think everyone agrees. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, I, so you, so yeah, so now we're, so our research is showing that, yeah, if you, I mean, so like what I think Nowak was the last guy to look mm-hmm. at, you know, all the populations and say, coyotes have what like eighteen or twenty-one subspecies or something like yeah. that, you know, yeah. and and nobody goes by that anymore. Nobody recognizes coyote subspecies. It's just like Western, Northeastern, and Southeastern. Right. There's like of, those clouds. Yeah, like, and it's it says, yeah. yeah, and so that that's that's what we're seeing now. You have this. Western population. So you essentially would say you have three coyote populations, but they're, they're distinct enough that we see them, <laughs> you know, we're, we're detecting that. So we have, right, right. And, and so like, you know, there's, there's some, there's some, there's some evidence that, yeah, John might be right. That what's in the Northeast is, has got its own trajectory, but at the same time, like I said, Brent's lab and Roland are probably correct in saying that, well, they're not species right now. They're not even subspecies. Like they're just ecomorphs or whatever. That, so, that, and, and so when John, when, wait, but when John was, when he was arguing this, was he trying to get protection for them or was he just Oh yeah. To, yeah. John, John's okay. been a big advocate. Okay. For, yeah. That's, that's okay. why that's, yeah, that's when he, yeah, he, that's, that's his thing. Yeah. So, he's, so did he really want them to be designated as a species? Yeah, he made Except that case. Species. Yeah, he's made that. I mean, yeah, right, you, he did. Okay, I'll send you okay, those papers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he even offered a scientific name. So, I mean, he's got. I mean, so so like 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 yeah, so like like two hundred years from now, like if they're like yeah, these things are unique, we right. got to give it a, a species <laughs> name. They're gonna have to go back to John's paper, you know, and Canet News or whatever it was, and they're like ah, oh, this guy's got dibs on the like he bought the domain. Yeah. Like, he's got the yeah, right. You know. Um, one more question. So, what do you think about? I'm just, I just, this is kind of like a tangent, but I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, we went way off. About, <laughs> I know. That's all good. But what do you feel about this? Because um, I haven't asked you. What do you feel about this wolf uh, delisting? Um, yeah, the delisting um, of, the, of the wolf. I, I, I mean, I would. Gray wolf. I, yeah, I, I don't think they've been reestablished to most of their historic range. And so I would keep them listed. I would keep them listed anyway, because especially in my experience yeah. with the red wolf, I mean, the state agencies aren't going to, they're just, they're just they're, not, yeah. no, they're not, they're, they're not going to do the job that the federal, the federal government can do. And so, I right. mean, yeah. So yeah, I, I'd keep them listed. <laughs> I, I don't. Do yeah, you think so. that it's, that, do you think they're going to be relisted? Do you think that's going to happen or not? I don't know. I don't I'm know to be cynical. honest with you. Like, yeah, I'm kind of like, no, but yeah, I mean, in my experience, like I said, with, with North Carolina, it seemed like the Fish and Wildlife Service wants to have, it, it wants to minimize the amount of daylight between their policy positions and the state agency's policy positions. Um, right. And so they, they want to, they want to be like overlapping, you know what I mean? 
and, uh, yeah. and, and working together and collaborating and stuff like that. And, and sometimes the state agencies just take these really hard stances and it, you know, the, the fish and wildlife service is kind of stuck between, you know, what the general public wants, which is a lot of times very different than what the state agency wants to do. And then maintaining right. its re- working right. relationship with the state agencies to do the things, you know, that it needs to do to, to manage these imperiled species. Um, because I mean, you have, you have wildlife out there that are, I think what federal and state trusted. So the state trusted animals would be things like coyotes and um, white-tailed deer that aren't endangered. But the things that are federally endangered right. would be federally entrusted species or federally trusted, or like like a red wolf. Or in this case, if you get gray wolves listed again in some areas, listed right, it, okay. it becomes a federally trusted, I guess, species. And then you know the the your Fish and Wildlife Service takes control of of, of managing those populations. The, right. Yeah. That that's that's why it's important for it to be listed in in the case of advocates and people who want to restore. The populations to a greater extent than what they are right now is to, to give the right. federal government control because in that case it doesn't matter whether the population is in wyoming or north dakota or idaho or whatever it's it's it just yeah it's, it's like a blanket yeah it's, yeah. it's you know in this case if you remove federal protection then then all those populations are managed differently under different right. like benchmarks and objectives like bureaucratic objectives and stuff like that Man, if I were a, I were a billionaire, what I would do with my money, like I just keep, I think about the land that I would yeah, buy up. I, I, if you gave me a billion dollars, I'd do a ton of dumb stuff. Like, like I, <laughs> like I told you, I'd, I'd probably put, I'd get the A team together and then go steal a nuclear sub from the Chinese, or I'd put a laser on the moon and extort more money from the governments of the. Stop. stop. <laughs> Don't say it. I'd buy an island and train ninjas, something like that. I would buy an island, but I don't think I would train ninjas. But yeah, no, I feel you on that. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for the Canid Project podcast. Please visit our website at thecanidproject.com and make sure to have a look at the show notes for more information on how you can contribute to our 501c3 nonprofit organization. Thanks so much. Till next time. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's so frustrating about conservation in this country is that it's like the most like deplorable people are the bad. Like, I feel like red wolves deserve better bad guys. Like the main obstacle for this, this decline was basically a real estate urbanite, suburbanite who works for his dad. It was the, it was the, um, like, it's, it's never like some like badass like James Bond villain. That has like, like I said, like a like a base full of mercenaries and ninjas. You know, it, it's nothing like that. It's it's like it's just like the dumbest people in the room with money that cause problems. And it's frustrating because like, if this is going to go extinct, like it deserves a better bad guy. Like it deserves like, what's her name? Like, uh, what's her what's her name? Like Charlene Theron or whatever her name is, Charlize Theron. You know how she was the bad guy in um like Fast and Furious Seven. You know, like, like that's who the Red Wolf should have as a bad guy. Someone like her or something like that. Like a James Bond villain. But we don't. We, we just we, we just get some real estate agent that works for his dad. Or some shit like that. It's terrible.